welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect podcast listeners. I am excited to have Stephen Perkins as my guest here in studio on the Anti-Architect podcast. Stephen is an esteemed entrepreneur in the realm of hotel architecture firms. He has founded several award-winning firms and ventures, as you'll discover. He is the founder and partner at Hotel Studio, a distinguished hospitality design practice in Washington, D.C. and Dallas, Texas. Stephen and his partner, Mendy Winkler, lead Hotel Studio, which fosters meaningful connections between guests and their surroundings. Before forming Hotel Studio, Stephen co-founded the renowned hotel design firm Forrest Perkins. Throughout the past several decades, he has played a pivotal role in designing some of the world's most exceptional and expansive resorts, including Tokyo Disneyland. In 2007, Stephen's remarkable achievements were acknowledged when he was invited to join the esteemed International Society of Hospitality Consultants, ISHC, as a member. He has co-authored the best-selling book, Addison Meisner, The Architect Whose Genius Created Palm Beach, which I have my copy right here, which I'm going to ask him to sign afterward. Stephen and I also share some interesting commonalities. First, we both have master's degrees in architecture from UCLA. We learned town planning from the world-renowned Andrea Stwani and Elizabeth Platter-Zeidberg. We have a mutual friend named Ted Majeka, who is on episode seven of this podcast, whom we both turn to for business advice in, in the architecture world. And here's something totally unexpected. Both of our parents happen to own AM radio stations, which I was shocked to, to read. So, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be here on the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Christian. Absolutely. So let's talk about that because it's so interesting. The whole AM radio station thing, my father spent the majority of his career, 40-year career in the radio business, um, working for ABC uh, primarily. We kind of moved around the country when we were little, uh, my brother and I, and uh, ultimately he settled in New York, which is where originally they were from. Um, I know more about AM radio stations um, than probably most people working in radio right now, just from my father, you know, kind of teaching these things. And I probably at the time didn't care, but somehow it, it, it retained. I'm always fascinated by radio. I'm probably one of the few that listens to AM radio. Um, everything from, you know, 50 watt stations. And, you know, he would talk about WLS and WLW and ABC in New York and KBC in LA and, you could try and tune in at night because at night the signal was stronger. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can get radio stations from around the country and all the things that the, the, the call letters meant, which was which was great. Um, and I think that's partly why I gravitated early on in my career to broadcast design was that, you know, I had this sort of love of the broadcast sure. of, 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 sure. of radio. Um, you know, what did you take from your parents owning 
you know, AM radio stations. And, you know, how has that sort of been unique in, in what you've done? Until I was 25 years old, I think the bulk of my radio collection said for demonstration only, not for sale. <laughs> so, because you were getting every record, every new record came yes. to the radio stations first. And so my brothers and I would go just forage through because they would throw most of them away. And we would go gather them up, take them home. And that was the basis of our collection for a long, long time. And but radio mostly. I started playing guitar when I was a kid, like every kid probably in the 60s. And so on Sundays, a gospel group would rent the radio station to do its own programming. And so I would go up and watch them play and learn from watching the guitar player what he was doing. And that taught me a lot about rhythm and blues and blues playing and all of that sort of thing. And I was in bands for a very long time after that. Yeah. But radio was always the center of our lives. Still is. I mean, my, my sister and I still are in the radio business. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So it's wonderful. But I've never been on air. Yeah, I've, no, I've, I've never been. This is my family who's never been on This air. is the closest I've come to air. So, and, and <laughs> this is pretty close. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree. It, it gave us an interesting life growing up because, you know, we, we got to travel to, um, to different events, right? Or, or we got in from my, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. And so we would get Bruce Springsteen tickets. That was like an easy thing to do for my father. Mm -hmm. um, but same thing, we'd have early releases of records, little perks that at the time I thought were just like the most amazing thing in the world, you sure. know? Absolutely. So um, anyway, let's switch gears to architects. Um, if you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about your fellow architects? They believe that they invented everything. They refuse to believe that it was invented by somebody else simultaneously <laughs> in, in greater detail and probably better form. And it, this is something that has bothered me for a long time, is that architects are not collaborative. They claim to be collaborative. They claim to desire collaborate, collaboration. And they really don't. They'd rather sit and just scribble it out and have somebody else draw it for them. And I think that's very frustrating. The, Problem these days is that architects, and you've talked about this in Brad Perkins' interview, is that we don't have the, the, the younger architects, the women and men in architecture now, are going straight to AI or something for their, their interest and for their influence. And we've lost the, particularly with COVID, we've lost the immediacy of relationships between older architects and younger architects. So, and on the one hand, maybe they will not inherit the older architects' um, repulsion to <laughs> collaboration. <laughs> on the other hand, I worry that they will not get the benefit of all, of all that any architect learns over the course of their life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a, you know, it's a profession where the, the older I get, the more I realize how much more I have to learn. It's... It, I've been doing this for a while, and <laughs> I learn something new every day. And mostly I learned I learned a lot of things from people who are in the middle of practice. They're mm. sort of mid-career because they've seen it both. They, they know where they're going. They have a, they have a vision for design. Uh, they've learned a lot about technology, and they've learned enough about practice that they're valuable. Their observations are valuable. The observations of a younger practitioner are more about design and what they've come from in school. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the mid-career person is really a valuable person to talk to. 
Mm. And I think they they should be listened to more closely. Let's talk about the school for a minute and the, the, the education process. Do you think that architects should receive more business kind of training or other types of training in addition to just design? It would be good. I mean, at UCLA, as you know, um, zero. Yep. And it was all about design. Yep. And I loved that aspect of it. I thought it was very, very valuable. I mean, we had we had everybody in the world coming through UCLA at that time in late 70s. Um, I think it's important you mostly – I think learning more about businesses caused architects to avoid risk, and that's further marginalized the profession. Hmm. And um, it's, it's not about – it's less about knowing where the risks are than knowing how to manage the risks and take the risk, but manage it well. And maybe business would help – yeah. You know, understand what the implications of risk are. Yeah. And that would be better. Yeah. Uh, you know, architecture as a field has always played sort of a significant role in in shaping the built environment and impacting society. Do you believe that architects have lost their stature um, and are now placed sort of a, let's call it on a lower rung in the professional hierarchy of, of other professions? I do. I do. Because of the risk issue. <clears throat> they're not, they're willing to be a member of a team, not the leader of a team. Mm. And I think that that's, that's fine if you're satisfied with that, but you're going to be marginalized and you have less strength in negotiation. You have less strength in, in the course of the work. Uh, you might be marginalized when there is an issue. Your view might not be as valuable because you've abdicated the risk that, would, that brought you historically to that point. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the fees. Um, I was talking in previous podcasts about this, um, <clears throat> especially when it comes to interiors. Uh, the fees are commoditized. You know, you have to be a certain price per square foot or you're not going to get the job. Um, I guess the, the question is, why do you think this has come about this way? And then also, how do we... How do we correct the ship or re-steer the ship so that, you know, the, the fees, you know, I, I was saying in, in a previous podcast, if I look back 10, 15 years, the, the fees that we got for an interiors project per square foot are basically the same as today, yet everything has gone up, you know, not double or triple. I mean, it's 10x the They're time. They're a tenth of what they were. Yeah, They're absolutely. So so how do we how do we get, you know, get back on the right path here? I think it, the further away we get from a direct relationship with the client and the project managers of the world, project management fir uh, firms have intermediated very effectively. And to, so to disintermediate that relationship between the big management firms, and we all know who they are, they're very good at what they do and for the most part, but they have got the client's ear and the client really doesn't want to talk to the architect as much as they want the project to get done on budget, on schedule, and give them something that they like. But they're yeah. really heavily dependent on the on the project management companies. Yeah. And as I say, some are very, very good. I've worked internationally with projects that I've learned enormous amounts about. Yeah. Because it was foreign. It was overseas work and you didn't know the lay of the land and yeah. all that sort of thing. But there I, I agree. And there there are some very good project management firms yes. that actually do yes. stand up for the architect yes. and, and I've they've said to me, you know, hey, your fee is 
you know, your fee is too low or you need you. I think you can get more here because you're going to need to do X, Y and Z that they haven't really told you about. And those are all helpful pieces of information where they do help too. I think where they're very valuable is on the cost side. Again, it's got to be a, a, you know, a good PM group, but, you know, some of the larger ones um, that have those resources because, you know, they can they can steer us in the right direction on the cost right from the beginning and prevent us from going down these these roads where we waste time and waste right. fee and right. you know propose something that is completely unrealistic to mm-hmm. a to a budget which is which is beneficial too we think that um, we like to begin a project by having a clear understanding with the owner about what they see our role as what are what are their goals design wise mm-hmm. i mean what do you hope to achieve with this are you are you looking for a lot of press? Are you looking for um, awards? What is your agenda for this project? And nine times out of 10, it's not just, I want it to be profitable. Mm-hmm. There's another agenda because there's corporate value that, <clears throat> excuse me, corporate value that's driven by the quality of the work. Mm-hmm. And there's value that if you're a public firm that accrues to your stock, if it gets awards and all that sort of thing. So we found, when we, were, we used to do a lot of work with host hotels and resorts. I mean, the bulk of their work. And they were very good about being very clear. They're very good at the beginning of a project about being clear about what they were looking to achieve in this project. And some projects were more important to them than others. Mm. And uh, it was a good lesson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be totally financially dependent. The other thing that architects don't do at the beginning is start with a question of, why did you hire me? Hmm. Tell tell us what attracted you to our our firm, our work, talk about our work. And then during the process of of the project, through completion, ask them frequently, how are we doing? Hmm. Architects don't do that nearly enough That's because a, really a, client, good point. a client, when asked, will tell you what they think. <laughs> and you should welcome that. That Sometimes it's it's beneficial. If I were you, I would have done this differently mm-hmm. or I wouldn't have done that. I wish I had known that you were going to do that. And, you know, uh, I regret that you did that. I regret that I approved your doing that. <laughs> but you learn a lot about the firm, that client. And uh, you learn a lot about your practice and your, I like that and a your lot. people. I, I, I think I'll implement that more with, with some of our clients. You know, I, I, one of the things I struggle with is because we have so many projects and so many clients is staying on top of all of that, right? And there are certain clients that I, for whatever reason, I gravitate toward or it's a very important project. Not mm-hmm. that all the projects aren't important in some way because they really do. They all make a whole. Um, and I don't want to see any of them, you know, go down. That's for sure. But I, I do play favorites, you know, for good or for bad. And it also has to do with the team, depending on who it is. But I don't check in enough on the ones that I'm not part of. But I think that's a really good point. Consider giving your your senior and intermediate guys permission to ask that same question. Yeah. Because they might tell that woman or man in the field, something that they wouldn't tell you for whatever reason. And it'll come back to you. And But it gives you permission also if they tell them for you to call that client and say, listen, I'm so happy that you talked to to Joan about this. Uh, tell me how we can help. Yeah. You know, Interesting. It's a, I think you've, we make ourselves more valuable when we communicate better and more frequently. You don't want to get in the way of the client's business, but it is a big investment that they're making. Yeah, always. And so it's... 
more dialogue than less dialogue is, yeah. is valuable. I like that. In my view. So, so you're, you've been doing this a long time, um, and I think I asked Brad Perkins this question. Do you ever plan to retire? <laughs> Do you see plan that in your future? the operative term. <laughs> Do you um, want to ever one day retire or do you I just want to do? Well, I have Mindy Winkler, my partner, is mm -hmm. remarkably good. I mean, she was VP Forrest Perkins, firm wide VP at Forrest Perkins for all interior design. So um, we've worked together on dozens of projects for many, many years all over the world. And so she will she is my partner. She's my business partner. She owns a chunk of the company. Nice. And so she is my likely heir. <laughs> No, I mean, unless she says, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I'm going to run into the street with my hair on fire. <laughs> but um, she's very good at it. She needs me around to give her whatever benefit it is about transition and how do you, how do you go forward? She's always been the designer, project manager, operating a firm. And we, our firm is not a big, I mean, we're 10 people. Yeah, you're lean. So yeah. no, we're, yeah. we, we love being 10 people right now. <laughs> Especially with the scale of projects that you do, it's it's extraordinary. So, so I do want to talk about what you call, you know, your career diversions. Um, and I think the very first time I met you was in Washington D.C. with our friend uh, Ted Majeka um, several years ago. And I remember the first thing you said to me was, "Oh yeah, I had this side venture that I did for a while." Um, it was called, uh, it was a building management system. Um, it, it aggregated real estate goods and services. And I remember being like, wow, that, that's really out there, you know, and then kind of doing more and more research about you, you know, you've had a lot of different paths. Couldn't all keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> but all sort of making a whole, which is interesting, and always as sort of the the let's call it architect as the the you know the the umbrella over top of everything. And you know, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this path with you. Um, and I, I want to read something that you wrote. Um, These career diversions strengthen my approach to my passion, and I can trace where I started in environmental psychology through architecture to my work today. <clears throat> the diversions were critical to whatever success my companies enjoyed, mostly because I learned to hire great people, build safety nets, and encourage every manager or director to be open to every idea, including my harebrained notions, and to be present, but in the second or third row. So I really like that. Uh, image in my head of being present and being in the second or third row. What what do you mean by that? You, the strongest firms tend to be inhabited by people who love where they work. And how do you get that? How do you get that dedication, that loyalty to an approach, to an idea? It should not be loyalty to me, although I, I appreciate that loyalty and whatever you're willing to do to to help us as an enterprise. But you really want people to understand that they are valuable and give them enough net that they don't fall and take your firm with it, but that they get out and they explore and they push the envelope a little bit. We're best as architects, I think, when we're, that's what we do naturally. We tend to push the envelope out. What if we did it this way? Everything is a what if. And I think you, you, you build a culture that way 
that is resilient, strong. People are looking out for each other. They're looking out for the company because they, the company matters to them. They, they should be compensated well. But you should never be concerned that you're going to helpfully criticize them if they're, if they're not doing the right thing. But I think you should be, I always want to be pulling people's from their back coattail. Hate pulling them from their belt buckle. Mm. You know, so go out there, take a chance, be responsible, think of the consequences of what you do, and make the firm a better place. I think there are a number of firms in this world that do that. I think Gensler is an extraordinary example of how that success has has generated massive success. And the culture matters. And what I worry about right now is when everybody was working at home for the last few years, is we we had a huge dent in our architectural culture. And younger, younger architects, those young women and men who came out of school to work from home. Yeah. You know, said and something I've heard on your podcast from other people as well. It's a, obviously yeah. a pretty good, fair, fairly good sized complaint yeah. in the industry. So I think we have to come back from that somehow. But generally what I'm talking about is give people the safety net. Understand this is where Ted Majeka and I worked very carefully when I joined Gensler is trying to figure out how, how do we monitor this work? How do we know? Because as you well know, as an owner, it can go off the tracks badly, very quickly. And if you're not watching your numbers regularly and in depth, so some sort of depth, you're going to miss it. Mm-hmm. And once it starts off the rails, you don't oh, know yeah. how big the cliff is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it, it's sometimes hard to find, you know, as you describe, people with these different skills Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have you, I guess, how do you encourage sort of the, the staff to find, find people that can step into these other roles? And then have you ever been disappointed along the way where people didn't step up, where you kind of gave them that leeway sure. and they didn't take the opportunity to do anything with sure. it? Absolutely. And you, you try to find another place for them. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes is not in your firm. <laughs> But it's but you have to be candid about it. I mean, that has to be. Um, when I was working with Perez Associates in New Orleans, we were at the end of the World's Fair. It transformed New Orleans. There was no work, no work. And when I say no work, and I was in charge of firing people mm. and hiring people. But one day I let thirty-five people go. Oh wow! Thirty-five people is a lot That's of people a lot in of people. a day. You yeah. can think about people watching my door. And it was a sad, sad day. And the next thing I did is I restarted my <clears throat> Stephen Perkins architect because I was going to be next. There was <laughs> no doubt. And that's when I moved to the Panhandle of Florida and watched Seaside getting developed with Liz and yeah. and Andres, you know, figuring out that whole thing. But uh, which is another opportunity to learn something about where that kind of architecture was going. Yeah. So take us through your career a little bit. I, I, I you know, it's a fascinating, um, you know, I have basically your entire career, you know, in front of me here. Um, kind of walk us through it a little bit. Um, 
and just kind of explain how all of these and, and definitely touch on the VMS system because I, I I'm very interested in that. So. We call it prop, <laughs> we call it prop tech now. <laughs> That's right, prop tech. You're ahead of your time. <laughs> Perhaps too far. <laughs> well, I would start by um, by saying that right out of school, there was a. I grew up in Mississippi, Natchez, Mississippi, and. I joined a think tank, which was started by Stanford Research Institute in Mississippi. It was working on poverty, housing, just trying to make sense of where this, what it had to do to make it a better place. And I worked there for three years. Now, the partner think tank was a group called Metasystems in Cambridge, Mass. It was all Harvard and MIT professors who were working on things, and a lot of it was um, early computerized data management. And we worked on all sorts of initiatives. And that's, architecture has a, a um, this is too big of a word to use, but elemosynary, where you're trying to make society better through involvement. And usually organized involvement, federal, state, local. And so we were looking at how you got, how you changed the institutions that were most critical to getting you the fastest response to need that you possibly could. And so we started doing community design centers mm. and we would go out to communities and do and involve everyone in that community in design. And it was the design of a school, a community center. A lot of these places are very small. They had no place for people to gather and that was one of the bigger problems is there was no exposure by groups to other groups and that needed that needed to be fixed so we started doing that and more more and more there were architectural consequences to those kinds of initiatives and so i started looking into architecture and then my, the the firm in cambridge mass metasystems suggested an initiative where we were taking working for the Japanese government in 1974 and trying to figure out how to take modular housing and adapting it to a Sukiya style, which is a Japanese, what we think of as a normal board and rice paper kind of house. How do you do that? And how do you make them so that they stack like containers? And this is early in the world of containers, wow. how they stack like containers and then go ship them over there. It would be good for Mississippi because we begin to make our own housing better housing. And Jap Japan needed it because they were, Japan was just at the beginning of its economic expansion yeah. after the war, after World War II. And so more and more, I was interested in architecture. So I went to North Carolina State for one year because they had a community design program. And I worked in Appalachia with a team building schools. And you just, you built what you drew. Huh. And uh, so that was instructive very. Way. But I began to see the bigger world of architecture, and I was interested in what Charles Moore was doing, and so went to uh, UCLA, where he had become dean after leaving Yale. Mm -hmm. And Cesar Pelli had left UCLA to go be dean at Yale, and so they just swapped. And that was the best thing that I, I could have done. Wow. But I've always had this passion for community and place. Place is a very big part, and we'll talk about that, I hope, at some point. But... I've taken detours at various points to go work on problems. 
we, Ted and I worked on military, the privatization of military family housing for the Department of Defense, managing a team from what was EYKL, Ernst & Young, Kenneth Leventhal, mm -hmm. before they were completely subsumed into uh, Ernst & Young and Parsons. And what we would do is do the econometric models that would pair a military property like, say, Hickam at Pearl Harbor uh, with Paris Island and in, on the East Coast. And what you would do is you would do a long-term lease on this, securitize that income, and build family housing in a place where there would never be an economic opportunity or a driver to complete that same thing. So we set up thousands of pairings and mm. privatized about $10 billion worth of housing. Wow. So it was a housing problem. And I'll, I like the architectural aspect of it. And it was an opportunity to learn how to think bigger. And... Um, it was, it was fascinating. Yeah, that's amazing. Before that, I was um, I worked on Tokyo Disneyland, as you mentioned, and Tokyo Japan because it was having a very difficult time. Was having a uh, having a problem trying to figure out what to do with their salaried men who were had lifetime employment, and these companies said we can't hire you forever, and there is we are not your safety net. The government will provide a safety net. We will abandon that. What happens to those men and their families? And it was an entertainment strategy for Disney, for which Disney was not involved at all. American Disney, the, the parent company. Oh, okay. It was all Oriental Land Company, and we never met with Disney. Oh, wow. But it was thinking about what happens to the Japanese family after that event, and how do you develop leisure in a Disney mold for Japanese society. And Japan is a, you know, homogeneous and then when were you at Gensler? Gensler from 93 after that, right. after that project, uh, I was contacted by Gensler, Jim Follett, who started Gensler with, uh, with Art and Drew Gensler okay. and uh, the first three employees. And they, I was living in Palo Alto and they said, can you come up to San Francisco for an interview? So I did and went to Washington because I thought taking my family there would be a better situation, wife, three children. And Gensler was a phenomenal opportunity. So they wanted to do hospitality and, and entertainment. So, okay. But it was, that office was not geared to that sort of thing. And so I left and started working on a project in Istanbul as Stephen Perkins' architect. Hiring Cone Patterson Fox, <laughs> small firm in New York, uh, to build a two million square foot facility, design a two million square foot facility. Oh wow! And so it was Gene Cone and I, and Bill Louis. <laughs> so now, where does the hospitality begin to form? And well, when... hospitality is in New Orleans. Okay, is in New Orleans, and that's after I go to Michael Graves after UCLA, work there for a year. Then a project that I had put in together. Princeton? Excuse me? In Princeton? In Princeton, oh, yeah. Wow. And Michael had hired me to come to Princeton. He had never hired anybody who had not gone to Princeton. Oh. And so it was a big shock. And you know what UCLA is like. I mean, the West Coast thinks very differently than the East Coast <laughs> about architecture. And um, it was wonderful, great education. But the project that I had worked on during school, uh, UCLA, with Charles Moore, went live. And Alan Eskew for future Eskew Dumez Ripple firm of the year, um, asked me to come to New Orleans and manage the project. 
So that was my first hotel. And then I did a lot of hotels while I was in New Orleans because we were doing the World's Fair and all this conversion of the warehouse district and just changing the fabric of New Orleans. Yeah. And so did probably 15 hotels while I was there. Wow. And I love hotels because they are communities. They are microcosms of society in a very <laughs> interesting way. And that's when I fell in love with the idea of place. And that goes back to environmental psychology. Perception. Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. So, and and especially as it relates to hotels, I think it, it it uniquely relates to hotels because I tend to believe and have believed for a long time that hotels you should know where you've been by where you've stayed. That the hotel should be a distillate of local influences, hmm. and every place is unique. We are hardwired in our lizard brains to love a place or miss a place or to desire a place. And those things are important for a hotel because if you've got a transient population, mm -hmm. people are passing through that hotel in that place. How does that hotel help them understand where they've been and how does it encourage them to return? How does it reduce marketing costs by creating loyalty among guests? And these things are possible. It, it, from that time when I was doing that to, say, maybe 20 years ago, um, we saw branded properties. Uh, every brand looked the same. Yeah. And then hotels, if it was a Marriott, it looked like a Marriott. If it was a Hilton, it looked like a Marriott. Because that predictability was part of the brand. Well, that ceased to be, as, as the American home and the European home and the, and the Asian home, for that matter, um, ceased to be expressions of, unique expressions of personal or family life. They were unique and they created a huge design driver that found its way into hospitality. And so people wanted to say, well, I want that, I want this hotel to look more, I mean, my home to look more like this hotel after that hotel was trying to look more like that home. And so it, you got into a cycle for a while. Yeah. And then you began to see a lot of soft brands, uh, the curios of the world, the variety of other soft brands that are out there, uh, which are not, they're, they're branded as the place, as that hotel. And they are truly encouraged to be expressions of that place. Yeah. And people love those expressions of that place. And so now the brands, you know, they have, they have dozens of brands under each big brand family, Hilton, Marriott, IHG. Yep. And they're thin slicing, just micro slicing the guest into these different drivers. And so, so you have lifestyle brands that are soft, softer, softest, and the softest are the ones that have no discernible relationship to the brand. And they're very successful. People love them. So we're seeing more of those being developed. And now we're seeing a lot more extended stay, so you can stay longer in a place. Yeah. Extended stay is the biggest growth sector in oh, hospitality it? these days, mm -hmm. at and all stages. What I find levels. fascinating about hospitality as well is that it does really lead the charge into everything else as well. You, you've mentioned residential, oh, yeah. but also with what we do a lot of office design exactly. that's definitely generated by hospitality. In airports, the hospitality the, is, is yeah, you know, exactly the airport right. is the new hotel, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's sort of the, got all of the all of the things you would think about. Um, and so when, when you started um, Forrest Perkins, so that was a, a good chunk of your career as well, right? That's, a, that's the biggest chunk yeah. of my career. And a very fact, successful, very, very successful, successful firm. Very yeah. successful 
run, we had about, about 96, 97 people at peak. And I was traveling a lot around the world because you've got to feed that beast. <laughs> and I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. Good, I mean, great partner, Deborah Forrest. And um, we did some phenomenal work. We went both, um, we went into Platinum Circle, which is like the, the best of in the hospitality design world yeah. in 2004. And so, what, 19 years ago now. Wow. And so it was a good recognition of what we were doing. And I think a lot of that had to do with making unique places. And we did some, certainly did some brand work. We did a lot of historic restoration, renovation. And that's, that has its own good effect on communities because you're, you're not tearing out the fabric. Yeah. And then you sold the firm to Perkins Eastman. No, I sold the firm to Deborah Forrest. I, oh, I okay. Left, uh, yes, I left the firm to go start the prop tech, okay. as it were. <laughs> And, um, and she sold it then and to she Perkins sold Eastman. It, she sold it to, to Perkins Eastman. Oh, I thought that was which a very good move. We were convenient doing, at name, time, too. Sake, at the yeah. time, we were. He was never Uncle Brad. <laughs> no, it's a very fine firm, very fine. Gen, several generations of Perkins have had a remarkable oh, yeah. uh, effect on this terrain. And I, I labor in that shadow. <laughs> <laughs> but it's. It was, it was a very good firm. We were working literally with Perkins Eastman, with uh, Sean Bassler. Uh, Mindy and I were working on the St. Regis Hotel and residences, branded residences in Amman, Jordan. And when I left Forrest Perkins, I left, we were into CDs. And um, so we had a very good relationship with, with Perkins Eastman. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I was working directly with Sean. Okay. And so, you know, it was very good, but a very impressive firm. Yeah. Very impressive firm. So we tell us talk. about the prop tech. <laughs> it, I've always liked technology of any kind. And one of the things I started noticing back in the, the, the 8, 9, 10 and, uh, was that building management systems were reporting scads of data, information, I should say. Uh, it was gone beyond data. And that if you took that information, then it was demand information. It was saying, I need to be cleaned, replaced, repaired. You know, I need my, my grounds need to be cut. There are, there are things in the calendar that BMS works against. And if you take all of that and then you take a series of tasks, repair tasks, replacement tasks, all that, most buildings have the same needs. So if you can aggregate that demand across thousands of buildings, then you can create a demand for a much bigger economic driver mm. to price. And if you take that and then drive it to reverse auction, which is what we were doing, we actually did, did many, many of these when, as a firm. We were actually doing it and making it work. But the... The goal was not the reverse auction because that's a commodity. You can get to that. Getting the, getting the data, aggregating the data is a relatively simple thing. It's even easier now with AI because mm -hmm. you can ask it to look for these things. And, but if you drove those, then you would reduce the price for widget A or task B to you know, a third of its cost, a tenth of its cost with huge demand. 
And then you give those breaks to your sponsors, to your your companies that are that are your partners in this. Those prices on a heavily reduced basis, and you mark them up as with a with a fee. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's a fee based thing. And but the the trick on that was not doing all of that. The trick was getting the appliance that sits in the BMS that starts capturing all this stuff and then automatically rolling it up to larger and larger demand. And so Ted and I were in disagreement with the creation of the software and the appliance. Okay. Not, no, Ted and I were aligned, but we as, a, as two people were, we had a different view than okay. our capital sponsor. Okay. And so it just didn't work out. Didn't work out. So, yeah. No, sad. But it was work. But we were doing it, and we were working ahead of its time. Though. And they and they fell. I mean, clients fell in love with it. We were yeah. working with some very, we were working very, very big companies that you would know, many operators here in New York. I'm sure because they they loved that it was being done, and one of our guys had been at Deutsche Bank, and one of our partners, our financial partners, had been at Deutsche Bank and had done a very big project for Deutsche Bank using this method. So he proved that it worked. He proved the concept. Hmm. And if we, so the difference was we were showing him how to roll up a lot of information, aggregate it, and take it to market. And then so, after that, you start Hotel Studio, which is Hotel Studio. Where, you, where you are now. And, I am and with cranking Mindy, along. And we're yeah. in Washington and Dallas. Yeah. And we, we look for opportunities. Being a small firm, we can look for opportunities that allow us to do what we think we do best, which is to drill deep in research, distill places. And we've done it many, many times. And uh, most recently, we did the Harpeth in Franklin, Tennessee, which just got the ULI Award for the oh, best wow. development. And the hotel is the TripAdvisor number one hotel in the Nashville market. Oh, wow. And, uh, and it has the biggest rev bar, Vinny Curio, in the whole Hilton system. Ah. So revenue per available. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it's done very, very well. And we're proud of what we contributed to that. And it gets great. People on TripAdvisor rave about it because they say there's a story here that we can, that's accessible. We understand what's mm -hmm. going on here. We love visiting this place because we learn more about this place. And so we think that's, that's our proof of concept. That's why it. people love it. And so what's, what's next for you? In the hotel world. More of this. I think more of this. I'd, I'd like to talk about it more. I'd like to evangelize about it a little bit more because I think place is an important thing. One of the things that I think is important about place is if you look at AI, and we call it AI now, but it's been machine learning since 2015, 2016 in the search engines that bring you Pinterest, Instagram, all of these things. And the success of those apps is that they bring you what you're looking for. And they then once you like that, it, they continue to bring everything else that looks vaguely like that. Mm -hmm. And it, it has a stultifying effect on creativity, I think. Mm. Whereas I don't mind that if our designers do that, but I want you to do it after you understand what you're looking for a little more clearly. We need to understand... What are the, what are we trying to distill 
And what might that distillation look for? Then look for precedence in that. We need to be better to use AI more effectively. And I think it's a remarkably powerful engine for all of us as yeah. architects and engineers, everybody in the world. Um, but we need to understand how to better query AI yes. to get the answers that we want yes. rather than for it to, to, to give us things that, oh, we, that's pretty. We'll use that. Yeah. Because all those images are beautiful in many cases, but they have no context. And I do worry that younger designers don't have the discipline to look more closely. So we start by don't look at anything. Yeah. Let's figure out what we're talking about here. What is this place? What was it? Franklin, Tennessee? What was it about? Um, it was a major battle in the Civil War there. Thousands of people killed by 10 o'clock in the morning. It was, uh, so what we designed, we took the insignia of enlisted people and made that a motif and made them into screens that slide past each other. Because in the enlisted insignia, you understand that it's the least of us who die in battle. Hmm. It's not the, although in that case, that, that bloody morning, right. five generals dies. <laughs> it's kind of a bad day for everybody. But um, if you can tell those stories, they're meaningful at a lot of levels. Yeah. And so- Look at look for those stories first, and then start doing searches, and learn to query. Chat it does go back to school though, because one of the things they teach you early on is a concept. You know, what is your concept, right. and they drill that down right. to you. And it, it does. It is amazing how that, even in the work that, even sometimes in the most mundane corporate work, we try to bring a concept to it. And I find that if you bring a concept. To a client, even a client that's not looking, you know, it's, it might be just a down and dirty thing. If you bring them a concept that is an idea, that is a thread, um, they respond to that. Mm -hmm. And they will they will remember that when making decisions later on. Oh, well, this doesn't quite work with the original idea. Or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I should spend, a, you know, five more dollars on this extra little thing because mm -hmm. it it completes the thought, right? And I think, I think you're absolutely correct that you've got to keep those... Um, you've got to keep those threads throughout or you lose, it, it loses exactly. something. It's exactly. just a bunch of images exactly. that you pull together. And you should go back to your original sources throughout the project and test your yeah. progress against yeah. those. And we do that a lot. We do Some of the designers lot. here do that too. We come up, they come up with a concept statement. <laughs> and then that is how every meeting starts off. Every design meeting starts off is that they read the concept statement and then they go into it. A lot of it is, some of it can be a little bit of a defense mechanism. Like, hey, remember, this is what we all agreed on. Sure, now we're going to sure. show you this. So please don't change your mind later. Right, right. Because um, we got to well, keep moving. <laughs> Add services. That's right. <laughs> That's right. The worst word. The thing about AI too, which um, you're right about the querying, you've got to ask it the right questions. Right. Um, I, I think I'm a little fearful on the design side because it is powerful. We've done entire presentations in AI, mm -hmm. entire presentations, and they are beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, now they're they're usually for things that go unpaid or they're they're something that we're you know we're pitching, so it's great for kind of quick down and dirty or not even down and dirty really amazing um, uh, result at the end of the day. Um, but you do lose, you know, if a client were to just pick up with one of those ideas, I'm not sure you could really back it up. A, I'm not sure you could build it. And B, I'm not sure you could back it up with the, you'd almost have to backtrack the, the, the concept or the thread 
uh, to hold it together. So mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting mm -hmm. to see how that backwards and forwards of AI, you know, pans out in the next few years. It's I think it's double-edged sword. I mean, it's, it's we're going to see some extraordinary things, but as architects, we are seduced by images. Mm -hmm. We really are, and and we'll forget that we wanted it to be like this when the machine can sh show you something that's so much cooler, so much sexier, <laughs> uh -huh. you know. And that's we have to guard against that. So that's why we start with place. It's because you're much more likely to end up with a unique expression. Yeah. Because it is an expression of that place. Yeah. And any place, every place, has something that people are tethered to that's that's important to them yeah. and generally shows up as motifs in their world. Well, let's talk about your beautiful book, which I have sitting right here in front of me. Um, what inspired you to write this book? And, and, and I, I think what's interesting is um, my parents moved to Boca uh, several years back. And so we go to Meisner Park all the time. Sure, that whole sure. area is all about Meisner. Um, it's really, obviously, an extraordinarily beautiful, beautiful place and probably one of the best in the world. Yes. But what, what inspired you to write this book? My wife and I were at a, a long weekend with friends in Palm Beach. And we have a good friend who's a publisher who published this book. And my wife, Martha, goes over to say hello to them and the publisher speculates that someone should write a new Meisner book. And so Martha comes home and says, Stephen, you and Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy Kaufman, who was also there, and she says, you should write this book. And I said, okay, good. <laughs> so Jimmy and I talked about it. We pitched Jed on the uh, Jed Lyons of Lyons Press uh, on the book. And he said, that sounds like a good book. We thought we'd do it in two years. It took four years of research and writing. It's 100,000 words, 250 images. I mean, but it got great reviews. Yeah. And so we're very, very pleased about it. It's done well. Happily, most people in Palm Beach give it as a welcome gift to their guest. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, I mean, Baked in sales. <laughs> but um, if you have a door that won't close, you can use this one. <laughs> But it's, it's been very well received, and it gave me the first opportunity I've ever had to do a deep, deep, deep dive in a place mm. and how it and it was created from whole cloth. It was a, it, these were swamps, and Flagler Railroad came through there, and the rest is history. Yeah. But it's a it's then the next part after the book. It took four years, as I say, and I, I was doing other things. I was managing the architecture for the AI, I mean, the, I'm sorry, the AI, the um, AEI building in Washington and doing this book because I had a non-compete for a while. And this, you get to write it, but then you also have to present it to the people that know that place best. And largely, <laughs> largely, they agreed with our assertions about what Meisner meant to the place and all of that. And there were... Uh, there was, there was more than one person who were surprised that we had beaten them to a book on Meisner. <laughs> but we had great cooperation. We did the research. Jimmy Kaufman could not have been a better co-author. And uh, that's amazing. Yeah, Congratulations. No, thank you. It's we a, love it's a doing beautiful it. book. And Palm Beach is one of the most beautiful places. Oh, absolutely. In the world. Yeah, I, mean, I, I love yeah. that. 
One day maybe I'll have enough money to have a house there. I don't know. Then you would get to work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so as we wrap up, is there anything we haven't covered uh, that you want to tell the listeners? Just, I mean, from a hortatory perspective, I think telling architects, think very carefully about what you're building where. I, I do believe that there are buildings that are that are beautiful and they have nothing to do with their context. Mm-hmm. I do believe that. And uh, so it's not as if I think everything needs to be driven by that consideration. But when you're doing something that's under 15 stories, 10 stories, think about what it is. I mean, New York has sort of drifted away from thinking about its architectural image mm-hmm. and you can see it when you're coming on the train yeah every time and yeah. you wonder how it could ever get that that back yeah when you used to know where murray hill was yeah and so but it's yeah i don't know how we got around a lot of the zoning in new york because we have some massive towers that stick up out of nowhere i understand the the nuances in the zoning that sure. people have figured sure. out um, I'm, you know, I, I'm that's not, how the Empire State Building and all those buildings did it the first time, right? Yeah, and if you listen to Vincent Scully, you know the original, you know, was two peaks in Manhattan, and now you have, I don't know, there's like 30 peaks in Manhattan all of a sudden. They're all over it's, the place. So. It looks like San Gimignano. Yeah, <laughs> but some of them are cool. Don't, oh, don't, don't get me they're, wrong. There are some beautiful ones buildings. along the west the side. The Finn buildings are, are oh, those are extraordinary, and just beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, those are residential. They are, yeah, yeah, yeah. extraordinary. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being my guest here today on the podcast. And thank you for all you do, especially in the hospitality industry. Um, You set extremely high standards in your thought process. And so thank you so much for that. It has been a delight. And congratulations to you that all that Mancini is doing. Oh, thank you very much. Beautiful, beautiful work. Thank you so much. And processes that are new in many ways in the industry. No, absolutely. Congratulations. (laughs) It's hard to do. Uh, To learn uh, more about Stephen Perkins, visit thehotelstudio.com. You can find him on LinkedIn. uh, And the book, Addison Meisner, The Architect Whose Genius Created Palm Beach, is available on Amazon. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So thank you again. (laughs) Thank you so much. 